welcome everyone to Science Society, also our future listeners. And of course, a special welcome to you, Maria. And um, so everyone gets to know you a little bit. Let me give people like a short introduction. Um, so uh, Dr. Maria Ruska, how, how do I pronounce your name correctly? That was perfect. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, she uh, did her um, master's um, in political sciences and government at um, the university in Rome. Um, and um, then she did her PhD in Italian aid development and aid policy um, also at the university in Rome. Uh, and she also did, um, additionally, um, she was at the UNESCO uh, Water Education, Water Service um, Management, um, where she um, um, studied and um, had activities around water resource system, water governance, and research methods um, around, um, you know, these uh, these topics. Um, and she was then also later on a senior lecturer um, at the UNESCO in water governance and um, in management and organization of sanitation. And uh, she was then also a Curie Research Fellow um, at, uh, in London at King's College and um, she was then also a researcher in water and society at the Uppsala University and the founder um, of Whales That Fly uh, where mm -hmm. she she worked and freelance which is it's it's a really interesting combination of um, of topics and now she's a lecturer in global development school of environment at the university of manchester um and um yeah i want to really um ask you how you kind of figured um that you want to you know work in this field and and you know do research and also um um yeah do this career choice was it something you always wanted to do always were interested about or maybe something happened that kind of you discovered this passion for uh, this type of work and um yeah it would be really interesting to learn thank you thank you katerina for the introduction i think you you know i don't know how you got all this information but you seem to know more than i actually do about my past uh, years in academia. Um, I didn't always want to be a researcher, especially when I was at the university. Uh, in school, I wasn't really a very passionate uh, student. Uh, at the university, uh, I became more passionate, I think, because more of the learning process was uh, in our hands rather than being sort of spoon-fed as, as in school. And then, um, the more I got to do assignments that were research-oriented and the more I got interested in actually learning. And I think that's probably true for, for many of us. We are probably more um, 
we enjoy more learning if we are at the center of our learning process than getting taught by lecturers um, like I am today. Um, at the university, I had a chance to do a dissertation which was based on uh, research, archival research. So I went actually to Berlin to do collected data on a completely unrelated topic. Uh, but that was really interesting for me because I really enjoyed the, in, the investigation, really trying to you know, answer a question, looking for for the information, uh, being creative in the process of uh, what the data I can use and how I can find them, how can I how I can triangulate different sources and, and come up with a storyline or with a, an explanation of a different phenomena. So I enjoyed it very much. And as I was doing my PhD, I started a second master in um, at UNESCO IHE, um, where I got more engaged, uh, more um exposed to human geography and qualitative social sciences so doing interviews and i decided to go to to malawi and i think that's when i really decided that this was what i wanted to do uh, where i did uh, research on access to water in the capital of malawi which is uh, lilongwe and i think as much as uh, i thought it was really a life-changing experience to to be able to talk to people, uh, hearing their perspectives on um, the challenges they face and and, and the type of um, different cities or different experiences of living in the city they would like to uh, have. It was really um, really life-changing, and so that is the type of research that I have then specialized more in. So qualitative and um, related more to justice and sustainability concerns. And in doing that, I worked with a lot of master students who I supervised, who were from an engineering background. Um, and we found actually, I found it really interesting to think about urban inequalities with them, who looked at it from a much more technical um, perspective. And that led me then to do to look for research that is more interdisciplinary and a bit more innovative and experimental. Um, and I started collaborating with climatologists and uh, hydrologists. And that then led me to do the type of research that I'm, I'm here to present today, which is, uh, yeah, which is combines social scientists, sciences with also uh, climate projections and uh, hydrological analysis and so on. Yeah, that's a really interesting, um, you know, a story, I think, um, how you first discovered kind of the type of, you know, investigation and learning you like, and then you, you then found like purpose-driven um, subject you want to spend your energy on and life on. I think that's really interesting um, approach, and um, um, yeah, it's it's wonderful that we get to talk to you here today. Um, and you you kind of alluded already to how you chose this field and how a little bit the study came about. Um, so, was there to get maybe a little bit then more specific? You you kind of mentioned how important it is to have an interdisciplinary approach. Um, so was it 
very common when you started um, in this field or was it something you kind of had to um, initiate? Um, you know, was there a paradigm shift to become more interdisciplinary to address this type of topics and, 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 and find solutions and, and study um, these problems or was it something that you were you know, had to actively enforce, basically? I think on paper, if you look at the many academic uh, journals, uh, they talk about um, their desire to do, to publish interdisciplinary work. And you, lo you look at different faculties, whether in the natural or, or the social sciences, there is always this uh, claim that the, the, the universities are trying to do more interdisciplinary work and interdisciplinary courses and interdisciplinary research. But I think that in practice it's not that common yet because uh, I think journals still, uh, uh, faculties are still organized uh, around disciplines and the journals as well are really um, when you write for a journal, you have to use the language of the discipline of the journal. So I think on paper there is a lot and in practice it's still not that easy to do. Um, I also think that uh, many, it's not for every academic to, to, to work in an interdisciplinary way. There are people that really like to focus on their own discipline. So it's also about um, identifying the right group and that takes time. I think for me it has been um, really great to be able to, to explore this with master students because I think master students compared to people who have a, a PhD or, or who have been in academia from a, for many years, they are, tend to be more entrenched in, uh, in their discipline. But master students are more willing to, you know, to experiment, they are more willing to um, they take perhaps uh, the less seriously this disciplinary boundaries. So for me, that was very useful in the beginning uh, to experiment. And then later on in, in the years, it was about finding people who could actually be uh, willing to experiment. Um, but I don't think it's easy. And I also don't think that uh, it's still so, um, so, so much valued, um, the interdisciplinary work. Yeah, thank you. I, I agree with you uh, completely. It's, um, yeah, it's still not, um, you know, as in reality as, um, as people claim this interdisciplinary <laughs> approach. Um, and um, I, I think it's really even more, um, you know, um, I, I think it turns into really usually really interesting uh, projects and results, but um, I agree it's not maybe um, come like in everyone's comfort zone to do so. And and maybe we also need both. Um, mm -hmm. We need maybe also people that stay very specialized in some areas, and then then we need people that uh, reach out more. Um, but. Um, Thank you for sharing that kind of background story um, and also your story 
to doing this research and how this project came about, I think uh, it's always really interesting to learn. And if you want to go into your research now, the, the slides are for everyone and also for future listeners pinned on uh, top of the room. And um, and then we, we go into, um, you know, asking questions and um, and discussing this topic um, a little bit more. So uh, yeah, thank you so much and the stage is yours. Thank you, Katerina. Um, my suggestion is I try to go through a bit less, uh, a bit more um, quickly without skipping anything, but so that we have a bit more time for discussion. There are a few slides that had animation, and so they are now uh, covered a little bit, but uh, I, I apologize for that, but I hope I can still explain uh, those, those slides. My idea was to, to do two things in this presentation. The first was to briefly discuss uh, why it is important, in my opinion, in our opinion, to, to, to work with scenarios of uh, future extreme events, which is what our paper focuses on. Um, then uh, explain briefly what approach we have developed to do these scenarios, and then speak a bit more in, in detail about the findings of our study. So I'm moving now to slide number two. Um, and I don't know how much you have discussed this type of um, issues already, but um, we all know that from the news and from books and from also a lot of climate uh, uh, science fiction, I would say, uh, that we can, um, that there has been over the past decades an, in, an increase in the frequency of extreme events and uh, also an increase in, in their in intensity. And some of the extreme events that have become definitely more um, intense in the past decades are uh, extreme rainfall, droughts, heat waves uh, and fires. Um, the U.S. has, uh, um, regions like California have uh, experienced a significant uh, droughts and fires, um, but also in Indonesia and Australia. Um, and of course, the region that I'm discussing uh, about more in detail later, um, Southern Africa too, uh, for, for just to give some example. Now, hydrologists and climatologists uh, suggest that this current trend uh, is, uh, is even expected to accelerate in the future due to anthropogenic climate change. So that means that we will um, probably uh, experience even more extreme events in the years to come. And with these extreme events also, um, there's going to be obviously more risks of, uh, of disasters related to these extreme events. Now, one thing I think that is important then, of course, is that there is so many times that we can think of um, unprecedented events as being uh, unprecedented before we start thinking of uh, these events as actually being uh, a new normal that is um, emerging. So underlying the idea of this paper is also um, 
this notion that the new normal to come is um, a normal that is uh, characterized by more extreme events. And so, and uh, I'm moving now to the, to the third slide. Basically, if we have a new normal that is uh, basically uh, characterized by more frequent uh, and intense extreme events, what are the implications when it comes to managing risks, uh, climate risks, in, in, in particular in urban areas, because that's what I focus on. I've, I'm more of an urban scholar. Uh, so basically, the, the, our perspective is that if we have to manage uh, climate risks that is exacerbating and that is becoming more intense, we need to consider both bad scenarios and also worst case scenarios. And with bad scenarios, I, I refer to some of the conditions that we are already experiencing. And with worst case scenarios, I am referring to um, what these conditions might become and uh, in terms of being more extreme and more difficult for uh, societies and in particular for uh, citizens, people living in cities to, to cope and address. And so one of the things that will be needed, and uh, here I'm thinking also in terms of policymakers, uh, civil society organizations, urban planners, is also actionable information on uh, these unprecedented events. But obviously, studying something that is unprecedented is quite complicated. Um, and what we thought is that climate projections that suggest that certain regions are more at risk of, for instance, um, uh, heavy precipitations or droughts um, or heat waves is not enough to uh, manage the risks that cities may face in the future. So our idea was that we also need to understand what these extreme events, what type of societal responses they might be elicit, who is more at risk, uh, what type of recovery trajectories of different individuals and um, societal group can we expect. So. Um, from our point of view, that also means uh, engaging with social sciences more, um, which indeed would mean then taking a more interdisciplinary approach to also understand, on the one hand, um, what differential agency uh, means when it comes to vulnerability to these extreme events. So underlying this is the idea that not everybody is equally able to cope with and adapt to the extreme events that are um, becoming more frequent and intense. Um, but also understanding how power and economic visions, the way our societies uh, develop, uh, the type of inequalities they generate, uh, if you want, the type of un uneven developments that uh, we see uh, globally. How does this, how will this shape the way different groups will adapt to and respond to unprecedented extreme events. Um, and so, yes, um, I'm, I'm moving now to the slide four um, to, to basically say, it looks a bit different, sorry for that, but anyway, that our, our idea is, okay, let's try to develop scenarios that include the climate projections, but also this uh, social science analysis. 
And whilst on paper it might appear uh, relatively um, simple, in practice this type of interdisciplinary research is rarely done for several reasons. One reason um, is that social sciences, in particular the qualitative social sciences, are generally uh, retrospective, so we tend to look at past events, uh, for example, uh, we might study Hurricane Katrina and try to understand uh, how gender, race, income inequalities have shaped vulnerability to Hurricane Katrina. Um, we might look at uh, how urban development might have uh, generated areas that are more at risk than other areas that are um, more able to withstand extreme events like the one like Hurricane Katrina, uh, while climate projections tend to be uh, looking at the future. So we have a very different focus of the research when, it, when, we, when, when we try to put them together. And then the other difference is that the, the climate projections tend to focus on a global or a regional scale. And instead, when we do qualitative analysis, we tend very often to focus on a much more local scale. For example, I would st study a city and within that city I would focus on particular neighborhoods that are uh, more vulnerable um, to certain uh, climate events. And within that neighborhoods, I might even go and look at households dynamics and trying to understand um, if there are gendered uh, dimensions to vulnerability. And then uh, we, I would even zoom and understand what happens to the scale of the body, trying to understand uh, how bodies are also affected by these um, extreme events. So we have different scales, we have uh, different uh, temporal scales, we have different spatial scales, and then we have very different data sets. As I said already, uh, we, we tend to use interviews, we tend to look, have uh, work with observations we do in the neighborhoods that we uh, research. Um, we do maybe focus groups, but my colleagues from, climate, uh, from climatology and my colleagues from hydrology, they use uh, numerical data. This can be data about precipitations, this can be uh, projections, but they are uh, generally uh, quantitative data. So we wanted to try and um, combine these different methods and these different approaches to research without um, trying to fit one into the other, changing the one, uh, the social science approaches to fit the climate projections or, or, or vice versa. And um, so I'm moving to slide five. And here too, um, it's more difficult perhaps to follow, but basically what we have done is um, we have combined four pillars. The, one, the first pillar um, is basically uh, leverages theories in the social sciences. Um, and this uh, theory is basically, is a, it's a meta-analysis that we have done of uh, literature trying to understand what patterns we can uh, identify from theory and from case studies on the ways um, society responds to floods, droughts, uh, heat waves, and so on. 
pillar two indeed are the climate projections. Um, these are uh, used to identify regions that are likely to experience an extreme event. And then we have two pillars, three and four, that are uh, really based on uh, case study analysis. Um, one is the, for example, if we were to do an analysis of, if we wanted to do a scenario of, of uh, heavy rainfall in Houston, we would, in pillar one, we would use uh, theories about um, precipitations and flooding and how societies respond. In pillar two, we would use uh, literature that uh, focuses on that specific region to explain why um, it is possible or likely that an extreme event will happen in the region um, and in the city of Houston. And then we would analyze past events in Houston because that's our location of interest. That would be pillar three. Uh, and for example, if we, if we were focusing on Houston, um, we would probably uh, do an uh, in-depth empirical analysis of Hurricane Harvey. But we also think that analyzing uh, an, a future unprecedented by only looking at the past event in Houston wouldn't be enough. Um, and so we added a fourth, fourth pillar, which, uh, which is a second case study, which fo would focus on an event of uh, greater magnitude, greater intensity than the one um, Houston experienced in the past. So for example, we could focus on um, Hurricane Katrina and the societal responses of Hurricane Katrina. And then our um, and scenario of Houston would then draw on all these pillars. It would draw on the theory, it would draw on what happened in Houston in the past, but it would also draw on Hurricane Katrina um, because obviously an event that has more extreme and unprecedented consequences um, also has different societal responses. And we try to infer which of these uh, responses might also apply to Houston in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll send the slides again without um, the animations because they come out a little bit strange like this. But anyway, uh, in, in the particular study that we are going to um, discuss uh, today, we have focused on droughts and our aim was to do um, a scenario for the city of Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique. And so we have focused our meta-analysis of the literature on um, responses uh, to droughts and particularly uh, in urban areas. Uh, we have, I'm now at slide six, sorry. And then uh, we have used climate projection of the Southern African uh, region. And we have looked at uh, a previous drought in Maputo, which uh, occurred in 2016 and 18, which is what I will mostly focus on in the last five, 10 minutes of the presentation. Um, now, um, this is obviously a very important pillar because it also is the pillar that gives us the context specificity. It's the pillar that really gets us to know the city that we are doing our scenario on. 
but the fourth pillar uh, focuses focused on Cape Town. Cape Town experienced uh, a drought uh, more or less in the same years of uh, Maputo, but the drought was uh, more intense than the one uh, experienced by Maputo. I think probably many of you have heard about it. It was often on the news, um, Cape Town and this risk that the water utility would run out of water. The pictures that you are looking at here is a picture of uh, a dam that is basically empty and basically cannot be used anymore for water supply. And uh, there was always this, this countdown to the zero um, that needed to be avoided and the city has been put under a lot of pressure to reduce water consumption um, and a lot of measures have been taken very quickly to avoid um, getting to this day zero. And so basically our scenario brings together all this information, theory, empirical case of Maputo, climate projections, and this conceptual transfer to try and imagine a future unprecedented drought in Maputo. So in the last five to 10 minutes, I will focus uh, on what we um, um, found in Maputo. It's a, it has, it's a city where I've done research for many years. And uh, that means that I had a, a quite clear understanding of how the city uh, worked before the drought, what type of uh, changes and what type of vulnerabilities em emerged uh, during the drought. And um, and also, obviously, I was there in the aftermath, trying to um, find to also research the recovery trajectory from from the drought. So, if we move to slide seven, this is just to give you a bit of an overview, which is quite important, I think, uh, of the city of Maputo. Because I think one point that is really important when we look at uh, urban droughts, especially in cities in the global south and uh, cities that have been um, also experienced colonialism, is that we find stark inequalities between uh, different parts of the city. And these inequalities are really reflected in the type of infrastructures that we see in the city. So for example, if you look at this map, um, you, you can see that the water utility is uh, providing 65% of the water, so, so they serve 65% of the population, while 35% of the population is served by small-scale uh, independent providers, which are the uh, yellow dots in the upper part of the city, while uh, the water utility network is represented by the um, white lines that you see in the uh, lower part of the map. So, um, so you can see there is a lot of diversity when it comes to water and there is even more diversity when we look at sanitation. Uh, the sewer network is 9%, uh, covers only 9% of the population. Um, this has been largely uh, built during colonial time and only uh, for the colonial elites. Um, while the rest of the population, the indigenous populations were ex excluded. It has never really been ex expanded since. Um, and the rest of the city, you won't see any symbols on the map for the rest of the city because it's actually a mix and it's quite difficult to, um, 
There are no maps that really say which parts have septic tanks and which parts have pit latrines. But um, let's say that from an, an income perspective, you will find that middle-income households will have septic tanks, which are more expensive, but also provide a better service, while the lower-income parts of the population have pit latrines, which can be much cheaper, but also have a number of limitations which I will further discuss in the next slides. So when we think about the drought and what it means for a city to, uh, to, to withstand the drought and the vulnerability of different residents to the drought, I think these landscapes are essential to, to provide um, an explanation for the uneven impacts of the drought. And so if we, if we move to the, to the next slide, uh, number eight, uh, we can see how that uneven infrastructure translates in uneven impacts. Um, so I can't point it uh, because, um, yeah, I think I can, you won't see where my cursor is on the Google Doc, but what is important uh, to notice is that uh, the greatest impact of the of the drought are uh, felt at the margins of the network, so at the parts that are further away from the city center. These parts of the city during the drought faced much longer and more frequent uh, water shortages. So while at, in the city center uh, the shortages were perhaps uh, a few hours a day, um, in, uh, in some of the neighborhoods further away from the center, um, the, the shortages could last two to three days, and in some neighborhoods also up to five days. And also in some neighborhoods, water was only available at night. Now, water inequalities uh, and, uh, are more than just water inequalities because they, they also generate a number of other inequalities. And so when we look at the same neighborhoods that had um, longer and more frequent shortages, we also see that gendered inequalities uh, were exacerbated during the drought. And why is that? Because in Maputo, like in many other cities and uh, many other countries, let's say, uh, responsibilities of uh, making sure that the household has water uh, fall on, uh, on women. And uh, that means that if, if water is not available uh, or is only uh, available at night, it, it is women's responsibility to get up at night and uh, make sure that uh, water is collected during the night, or it's also their responsibility to work, uh, to walk uh, greater distances and go uh, fetch water from neighborhoods that actually have a, a better supply. So there is clearly a lot of uh, psychological uh, stress involved when water is not flowing for women. And this has actually been also uh, tested uh, by scholars in medical anthropology who have tested the stress level and pressure levels in women during uh, droughts and water shortages, uh, showing how that can generate uh, significant uh, psychological stress. There is also risks associated with collecting water at night, of uh, personal risks, of uh, being attacked, of being robbed for women that have to walk alone um, in the city or have to... Um, get water from a tap outside their homes. But also, uh, and I will go back to this in the next slide, 
um, when you put together um, long water shortages and um, sanitation systems based on, on pit latrines, uh, the risks of water contamination are so much, uh, uh, much, much higher. And what, you, what we saw in Maputo during the drought is that there were several cholera outbreaks and these cholera outbreaks were all uh, uh, in, um, in areas that had little water and on-site sanitation, like pit latrines. So it's, a it's the areas that uh, suffer from the greatest infrastructural deficits that also then experience more risks of exposure to contaminated water and more risks of cholera, but also other diarrheal diseases. Um, so instead, if we look at the city center, which I have given a color red to match the color of the sewer system, so the, let's say the colonial city, um, you see there is no public health crisis there, there is no cholera outbreak, uh, there is no diarrheal diseases, and, and the shortages, the water shortages are very limited. So you could argue that that part of the city has actually experienced uh, the drought in a much, much milder way than those living at the margins. The third area of the city is uh, that uh, where uh, small-scale providers provide water. It's difficult to provide um, a clear trend here because all providers have different, each provider has a different water supply systems. Some are actually quite technologically advanced. The, uh, the water is uh, purified and um, the service is generally quite good. Others have uh, less advanced systems, they don't treat water. So it's difficult really to um, say who, um, to, to think of them as uniform. They are more than 800 providers. But one thing that is uh, clear is that they use groundwater and not surface water. So they are much less affected by the drought than um, the water utility that uses um, surface water. So what happens here is that there are no shortages, but there is an increase in groundwater exploitations because the, the providers see the drought um, as an opportunity to expand their market and sell more water also to people that live in, a, in areas that are served by the water supply network. So if I live uh, in an area uh, close to a small scale provider, I might want to um, go buy water from small scale providers to make sure that I have enough reserves. Um, and so basically they captured part of the market that was previously um, the market of the water utility. And so if we move to the next uh, slide, um, I just wanted to highlight here the, these different situations in different parts of the city uh, that I have already mentioned. So you have a stable water supply in the city center, you have public sewerage, and you have a drainage system. So it's really easy to deal uh, with, the, with the drought, but also to, to deal with water in general, because uh, you have water is always available. You don't have to worry about uh, your toilets. You can just flush your toilet and the water um, basically flushes away your toilet. And there is a drainage system for the, the water used for washing plates and 
and the water used for doing the laundry and so on. So we, we people who live in this area, like people who live in most people who live in here in Manchester, there in New York, they don't they don't have to think about uh, managing water all the time. Uh, but if we look uh, at what happens at the margins of the network, so what you see in the left bottom corner uh, of slide uh, nine, we uh, during the drought there was a very unstable supply. Uh, as I mentioned, there was uh, pit latrines, but also importantly, uh, there is no drainage system. So what are the implications uh, for people living in these neighborhoods and particularly for women who have to really, who are responsible for not only for water, but also for maintaining the household clean. Um, and therefore they're also responsible for the pit latrines and for um, keeping, doing the laundry and uh, cooking and so on. So if you go to slide 10, uh, you can see uh, several practices that women uh, have to do and uh, that were uh, made more complicated by, um, by the drought. I'm only going to describe two because I think we need uh, to come to an end. Uh, so if you look at the bottom corner in the left, this is a woman uh, who's, this is 3 a.m., uh, the woman just woke up um, because she, she knows that water is only available at that time, between 3 and 5 o'clock. And she has only three buckets of water. So she needs to first do her laundry and then hang her laundry and then use the same buckets to store water for the day. And this uh, same woman um, works as a housekeeper in, in the city. So after waking up at three and doing this work at six o'clock, she goes to her own work. Um, her husband works in the city at night, so she's alone and she's also worried about her um, safety. And I'm gonna leave the other images because of um, I want to focus on the one on the top right. What you see here um, is a uh, a pipe, a water pipe that has been cut open for a woman to uh, get water from the street. The reason for doing this is that she probably doesn't have water at home. And uh, so she digs the water supply network out, cuts it and gets water for the house. Now, while this is an immediate uh, solution, it also generates uh, a lot of issues because it creates further um, blockages in the water supply system, and it uh, increases the risks of water contamination. The risks of water contaminations are also uh, further exacerbated by the pit latrines, uh, which uh, carry E. coli. And um, what we see during the drought is a lot of this cutting of the pipes, a lot of flash floods uh, due to short but heavy rains, a lot of uh, latrines overflowing, and uh, great drinking water contamination, which then generates that cholera outbreak that I had mentioned previously. Uh, if you move to the next slide, I just wanted to say um, that this network um, also moving to the scale of the body, uh, this network also uh, basically plays a key role in determining which bodies are going to be healthy bodies in the cities and which bodies 
are going to be unhealthy bodies and which part of the city can do relatively small work or no work at all to stay healthy and access water and sanitation and in which part of the city um, this is going to be actually uh, a lot of labor with still a lot of risk to uh, being uh, to catching a disease like cholera or other diarrheal diseases and i want to say one more thing before i close i think uh, we can close here um, which is that an additional element of inequality uh, and outcome of the drought is that um, diseases like cholera are uh, stigmatized in uh, in mozambique uh, cholera disease is called um, the disease of the dirty hands which clearly points to um, to the responsibility of the person who gets uh, sick. Um, the idea that they are dirty, their hands are dirty, it's the responsibility of, for not staying clean. And what you notice when you do interview in uh, Mozambique is uh, that a lot, of, um, um, a lot of the people who actually had, uh, were affected by cholera, for them it was really important to mention that they were not, uh, that they didn't catch it in, in their house, in their homes, and that their homes are clean and, and that they have a good supply system and that they have a good pit latrine and so on. Because exactly because there is so much stigma attached to, to these uh, diseases. Um, I had a few more points, but I think um, we can stop uh, here. If you go uh, slide 13, it summarizes a bit of the findings uh, on uh, gendered inequality, uh, on uh, waterborne diseases that are generated by um, droughts. And on top of that, um, obviously, when the household has uh, less water availability, uh, there is no um, opportunity to uh, water gardens and, uh, and you know, have some vegetables from their own land, which can increase food insecurity. And last, uh, having uh, increasing the, the need for storing water during the drought can also increase uh, risk of malaria. Um, particularly because the buckets often are full of water but don't have a lid and the temperatures are high, which makes it a very um, uh, suitable breeding ground for mosquitoes that carry uh, malaria. So if you, I'm happy to stop here and leave some time for us to have a discussion if you want to. Yeah, thank you so much for guiding us um, through this research of yours and the insights um, that um, that you provided here. At least I, you know, since I'm not an expert at all in this, I learned a lot. I didn't know that I kind of was aware that women's jobs are around you know securing water but i was i didn't realize how it impacts their everyday life um so significantly for because of the timing of water availability um so yeah i i you know before i read and learned about your research i really didn't know um I didn't think about, you know, the extent to which it changes uh, people's lives and women's lives so significantly. So I think that's, you know, very valuable um, to have this interconnected way of, of analyzing um, 
these situations and um, you know I think we learn a lot of very valuable insights so do you think I guess the question that that comes to mind first is you know what what are the practical ways that are realistic that that can change the lives to the better um, are there models and and how easy is it for these um, governments and communities to implement them is it something that's realistic to change the ways things are or will it be really hard because of many political and other um, you know issues that kind of um, make it harder to change how things are i think there's gonna be uh, both are i, I think your and or are both uh, correct uh, i think it's gonna be difficult because there there is gonna be resistance to change but there is uh, much that uh, can be done and uh, for one i think if th this is a short presentation so i didn't have time to go into explaining why the, the, the water network, uh, there is less supply at the end of the network. The reason is the way the network is designed. So most of the distribution centers are in the city center. And so basically the water flows first to the richer users and then goes to the lower income users. Plus these richer users have uh, tanks, 1,000, 1,500 storage, liters storage tanks. So they tend to take all the water and people in low income areas get only the leftovers, basically. But this is, has been done like this by design. Uh, the, the distribution systems have been put there by design to favor certain groups. But uh, that design can be changed. Um, and there are people in Mozambique who think that the systems should be, uh, the distribution systems should be uh, this spreads more evenly across the city so that low-income dwellers actually have a better access to water. So that's a technical solution that is also a political solution because it requires also the recognition that every citizen deserves good water services independently from whether they, they have um, a lot of money or not. Uh, so that's a solution. Um, it's technical and it's political. Um, that would allow to redistribute water. I think there is an issue of uh, um, dealing before a drought with the levels of consumptions of water in the city. Um, very often uh, dwellers in uh, higher income areas consume uh, amounts of water that are not sustainable in general, independently from the drought. So I think there should be a more proactive engagement with, uh, um, with citizens to make sure that the consumption levels are sustainable so that when a drought happens, there is less risk of uh, it leading to a water crisis like the one we have seen in Maputo. Um, so these are, uh, are changes that I think uh, are uh, very important and are possible. Uh, I think there should be a careful, when we talk about water demand management, we need to be very careful 
because on the one hand, we want to manage the demand of um, higher income groups, make sure that they consume less, but we also have to make sure these measures don't affect lower income groups who should consume more, actually. We should make sure that they're well targeted um, to their users who, who are over-consuming rather than changing the behavior of those who are already consuming less. So I think a lot of dealing with droughts has to do with more proactive measures that have to be put in place during um, periods in which drought is not there. Obviously, if, if inequalities would be less stark, people could afford water, and then that would also make it easier. Uh, but from a water perspective, I would say these are measures that can be put in place. This will also, you know, uh, you can't change gender dynamics in a country, but if, uh, you know, the burden is less than the current one, women uh, would probably would benefit straight away. If the task of fetching water and, uh, and managing the household would be less burdensome, that would be also useful um, relief for women, obviously. Yeah. Um... I agree, um, and I think it's it's a really important issue, and it becomes more and more important with, you know, with climate change. This problem will just get worse, um, so um, it it will become more and more challenging um, for people that are already now affected. Um, are there? I know it's getting a little bit away from, but you know there are companies that develop these um, water accumulation systems based on solar power. That basically the humidity in the air gets accumulated and can produce even in you know desert type of settings quite a good amount of water supply. Are, are there any of these companies or organizations trying to fund, you know, this type of water systems in, in, in places that are highly affected already? Or is that nothing like that is happening as far as you know? In cities, uh, I think those amount of water would not uh, be sufficient. Um, I also wonder about the quality of the the water because cities are very polluted so here we go a bit quite a bit outside my expertise but uh, cities are quite polluted so the water uh, captured from the air or from the um, rainwater or the other system that you were, were mentioning might be not adequate for uh, drinking purposes for example but also cities are big. Um, Maputo has almost 2 million inhabitants. So generally the type of infrastructures that are um, designed or thought of uh, are much bigger ones, uh, like uh, large dams. And if, if, we, if we think about learning from Cape Town, for example, um, there is a little bit a reflection to be done about whether we should always rush to build uh, a new dam. Um, because I think uh, what we see in Cape Town is that uh, there is a lot of groups that are, or uh, the, the urban elites are uh, consuming significant levels of water. Uh, they have big gardens, swimming pool, a lot of amenities. Um, and building new dams before addressing, you know, uh, unsustainable consumption 
might generate a false sense of security. You know, there is this uh, vicious supply and uh, demand cycle that we have seen a lot also in the US. Uh, we've studied also um, a lot of uh, um, the constructions of dam in, in dams in the US. And you can see that uh, the dams, large dams have uh, facilitated a lot of the uh, development in the west of the country, which is quite dry and it, that now is really struggling because um, many argue that there has been, you know, um, false sense of security generated by the constructions of, of um, many dams and uh, Cape Town uh, experiences a bit the same. So from our perspective, thinking about cities, um, dams are, imp are important, but um, before building more, infra more infrastructure, it is also important to redistribute water and to make sure that water is consumed more sustainably, particularly by the wealthier um, communities who are really responsible for overconsumption rather than the um, lower income groups. Yeah, and as far as I understand, um, these big generated, you know, dam lakes, uh, a lot of wa fresh water gets then evaporated. So mm. it's a relatively inefficient way of accumulating water because you have such high rate of um, evaporation unless you would catch it somehow but that's mm. not not really happening so and um, um, the other thing what happens in dam, dams is actually it has to do with co2 i think you know it actually produces more co2 than mm. it um, but that's a bigger <laughs> climate change problem that we won't <laughs> and um yeah, so, so you mentioned, you know, that the structural changes need to happen and that, you know, just using technology might not be the solution, you know, it, but I still, I was thinking about, you know, and Bill Gates was also mentioned here in the chat by, by other, um, you know, by the audience, you know, those um, facilities he helped develop and fund. Um, that kind of turns dirty sanitation water mm -hmm. into clean drinking water and things like that and to change basically the sanitation system that is not kind of based on our Western world uh, structure that doesn't really work in a lot of places that don't have enough water, for example, um, you know, to change the thinking there and, and have engineers from the regions develop um, systems that actually you know are realistic to implement is that also something that might be um, considered to basically use more the knowledge and the voice from people living in these situations and and then develop structures based on that Absolutely. I, I think uh, talking about Bill Gates, uh, you probably, maybe also some of you saw the documentary. There is a documentary on Netflix and he has one episode which is on sanitation. And I thought it was really interesting uh, that, uh, of course, he has a technology at heart. And um, he was saying, this is, uh, I remember, such an important sector and it's one that has had no innovation in so long in such a long time 
and it's um, it's true. It's it's uh, strange to think that the sector that um, on the one hand we have sewer systems that you know they are not sustainable. They're extremely expensive. Uh, um, they use a lot of, we flush uh, potable water in the toilets. I mean, um, now as we go to think about droughts and climate, it becomes more and more shocking to think that those are the systems that we have in place. And I don't think there's going to be the resources to reproduce them and expand them and maintain them in, in the future everywhere. Uh, there might be a lot of challenges. And at the same time, we haven't innovated uh, when it comes to on-site uh, uh, sanitation, especially for low-income dwellers. So he's, I think he's very right in saying that there is an investment to be done in, in to really uh, find technologies that are, you know, more really more pleasant to use. Uh, some of the latrines um, are really uh, unstable, they collapse. Uh, they uh, they are built in ways that uh, pollutes the lo lo local groundwater. Uh, they they are a risk health hazard and they are a life hazard uh, for many people. So I think there is it is important to think that uh, yes we need decentralized sanitation um, sewer system are not realistic. But what type of decentralized sanitation can help us um, you know reduce risks of uh, fecal contamination in the neighborhoods that use it, make it safer for women and uh, to access these facilities at night and makes it safer for men and women uh, to, to go in without the, the facilities collapsing. So definitely technology is important and I think we haven't done much, especially because those technologies are um, technologies used by low-income dwellers in uh, cities in the in, in countries in the global south and we have sort of accepted that they have to accept a sub substandard uh, service for the moment but i think there is we need innovation and we need to make those facilities um, safer and also more pleasant to use yes i agree and um like a more broader view that I don't know if you want to get into that, so feel free to to maybe say, you know, this is too far away from the topic, but I've been um, hearing a lot from, um, you know, international aid um, organizations that due to um, different con uh, conflicts around the world, COVID, and then additionally inflation rates, that the money going into organizations that would maybe finance all of these, um, you know, structural changes and maybe technology developments and so on, that um, it's currently less and less and, and there's even difficulties in feeding uh, people in, in, in refugee um, camps. And on the other hand, the EU especially has been discussing that they want to basically make lives better in the countries of origin to kind of address the refugee um, crisis. That's at least how they label it. Um, so how do you see how the current situation is? Is it going to be a trend to facilitate more of these innovations and 
and that the Western world basically uh, helps with them? Or is there the, is the reality actually the opposite, that there's less and less interest and help and financial help for these organizations? Well, I can I can say that uh, some of the projects that um, I was involved in and that are based on research um, and uh, you know collaborations, you know research and action um, in several cities have actually been cut significantly over the past uh, yeah year and year and a half. Um, so surely uh, there is less funding available. Uh, I also not sure from what I studied in the few countries that I worked on, which is particularly Mozambique and Malawi, when it comes to sanitation and financing infrastructures. Uh, and that's actually another relevant point that you raise in there, Katerina, is that uh, there is a lot of funding that goes to NGOs and that there is a lot of projects that are um, funded um, through loans by the World Bank, for example, the African Bank. But I don't see that they always benefit the lower income groups as they, uh, as they should. I think um, NGOs, for example, have been working a lot on sanitation, but uh, a lot of their projects have focused on uh, uh, an approach that's that is called community-led total sanitation, which basically uh, doesn't really finance uh, local households to build sanitation, but um, rather creates the demand, uh, a sort of marketing of sanitation approaches. So it's more about uh, suggesting, creating shops where people can uh, go and uh, look at different facilities and then uh, purchase what, what they can afford. Um, and on the other hand, pushing uh, households that don't have um, uh, pit latrines at home to to um, to install and to buy one. So it's sort of more creating the demand than creating the supply without providing uh, really financial support. The argument has been people who, um, if you give subsidies, people will not uh, take care of their facilities uh, because uh, they don't feel that they, they, they have paid for it. I think that argument luckily is, is being... Um, uh, less and less um, hegemonic, less and less uh, ma mainstream, because I think in, in many cases, households uh, cannot afford uh, to, to build, maintain, and empty these latrines. So thinking of a system where NGOs aid also by providing some form of subsidies, uh, I think is, is essential. So probably NGOs have less money, but I think that money can be uh, spent more on supporting households also financially. I think that households, uh, the assumption that households will not maintain or care for something they haven't paid, paid I don't believe it for a moment. And I think um, financial support can make uh, a difference. And I think recently in a few conferences, you know, with practitioners, NGOs and consultants, I hear again talking about targeted subsidies. So I get the feeling we are moving back to that, uh, and I think that might generate some improvements. I think that's my opinion. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Um, 
Yeah, and I didn't know about um, that uh, problem. Um, so, yeah, I learned a lot today. I wanted to, um, you know, ask if people have questions. And Gilbert, did you have a question that you wanted to, or comment that you wanted to get addressed? Thank you. Well, actually, I, I, um, I had a couple of questions about the proposals for what type of solutions we could uh, we could have, but uh, the doctor already answered them, so I'm good. Yeah, thank you, and I think it's a it's a really important discussion. Do you think that <laughs> I know I'm I'm known for asking this question? Maybe some people will roll their eyes, but. Do you think the problem also doesn't get addressed too much because it's, you know, it impacts women's life a lot and probably people that are legislators and so on are, are maybe not too much represented by women? Definitely. I think, um, definitely. There is, a, I think, in general, um, a lack of, well, let's say to be less pessimistic because we can do more uh, to everybody uh, uh, to, to really, I think, understand and, and, and try work to address the issues of uh, marginalized groups in, um, in cities and rural areas as well in the global south. Um, I think if, if we had... Uh, um, if these problems would concern people who have uh, more political power and more political influence, uh, that would be um, they, this would have been addressed already, and that applies even more for women. So when we when we zoom in in sanitation and think of all the challenges that are on the uh, that have to be addressed by women, uh, obviously if, if this would have been um, responsibilities of men or of the households, they would have been already many of these would have been already addressed. Um, I had the same experience in, in Lilongwe, you know, uh, with this water, there was uh, water kiosks that uh, um, I was studying how, how well they functioned and all the, all the men that were actually at the top of the management of these uh, kiosks, water kiosks were telling how uh, well they were working and, and only after weeks in the field doing research, I managed to talk to some women who actually are responsible for selling water at the kiosks. And then comes the story that, uh, you know, uh, they often have to do it at night, they are attacked, there's cases, instances of rape, instances of being robbed, and all these dimensions that uh, I've never heard of in all the conversations with, uh, with the men, uh, because uh, they represented the organization and they didn't experience these problems. And uh, so they were quite um, concealed. There is definitely a gender issue there especially when it comes to water and sanitation. Yeah, um, there should be a general women's strike around the world. Women should just stop doing whatever they're doing. Like in France, <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> a lot of things would maybe change if they would just stop doing <laughs> everything they do for a month. But this is not realistic, so... Um, yeah, I, I, I hope, I know we've been talking now over an hour, so um, I, I wanted to just ask 
what you know you're currently working on and what the future direction is of your work where you want to basically take this or you know um, yeah what are you working on what the future may hold because I think at least I'm and the and the few people here will be really interested to follow your work um, because it's really important so yeah if you could give us a peek into the future thank you I there's lots that I want to do I'm looking for some of it requires funding but uh, I'd like to study other extremes um, like uh, heat waves and um, in particular in Asia uh, but there are two things that I'm doing in, in more in the, in the interdisciplinary um, work. I'm in, in the effort to be more optimistic about the future and try to uh, think of alternative uh, futures, more sustainable and equitable futures. I'm working with colleagues uh, from hydrology uh, modelers and I'm developing a model uh, that tries to look uh, that looks at the current impacts of uh, floods uh, in the city, and then we try to model uh, different storylines, uh, different scenarios in which um, we put in place a number of policies that are directed to reduce inequality, to increase well-being of lower-income groups, to um, build back better after a disaster. So not. Uh, um, return to the system before the disaster, but also uh, build a better system, a more equitable system. And we try to see what type of outcome, you know, we can model for the next 200 years, what type of better societies we can imagine. And this is uh, also maybe considering uh, scenarios of the growth instead of uh, uh, co constant economic growth and, and, and so on. And uh, this is an effort to because critical social scientists tend to have uh, understandably uh, a little bit of a bleak view of uh, of uh, social political and economic dynamics that uh, system that creates systems of inequalities and we want to also work to to show that other futures are possible so that's one of the things i'm, I'm working on uh, now with uh, colleagues in germany uh, sweden and um, the Netherlands. Yeah, that's interesting. Is by any chance also are people so like mental health professionals um, included? Because I actually um, at a, a documentary, there was a documentary, I believe in German public um, TV that um, discussed the mental health impact, for example, of heat waves in India. Mm and how many people basically have PTSD symptoms to be exposed to this very severe heat and having really this uh, physiological, um, you know, responses that they, you know, collapse, you know, also kids, like teenage kids and, 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 and different people collapsing and a lot of women also and um, how, you know, they have basically mental health, prolonged mental health symptoms from it. And I would assume the same situation would be in Maputo from women being constantly mm -hmm. under stress, um, you know, very chronic stress to go out at night to get water. And it will then also affect 
if they are pregnant and so on, the next generations, mm. it really has been shown to be very impactful for the mental health of future generations. So is there also like collaborations with this type of research maybe? I would love to. Uh, my collaborations for the moment uh, don't include uh, mental health uh, experts. I, I collaborate with a physician, uh, doctor, but physician, uh, and, and we are working actually to look at the um, heat waves and the impacts on pregnant women, and um, um, but also uh, we have a proposal in for looking at the intersection between uh, climate change, uh, so again, droughts and heat waves and, uh, and and health, but physical health. Um, but surely it would be interesting to to expand from here uh, to other um, to other sectors. PTSD is also, uh, I mean, there are studies showing high extreme levels of, uh, and extended uh, long levels of PTSD for uh, victims of uh, Katrina, and especially the groups that uh, that were more affected. Um, there are studies from 2018 and 2019 showing that uh, PTSD persists many, many years after. Um, so the trauma is there when there is a when there is a disaster or when there, or, or when there is a shock. Um, but I haven't been able to. You know, you need to find the right collaborators, and um, and that means people that are um, enjoy working together and working in an interdisciplinary way, but also that enjoy working. So um, it, it it would be really interesting, but we haven't done this yet. Yeah, um, yeah. I hope one day. I don't know. <laughs> I know there's always a lot of ideas, but then actually doing the work is a very different thing yeah, so it's easy to come up with ideas but maybe if that doctor could collect some blood dna samples later mm -hmm. on when they have time and money one could analyze mm. methylation levels um of that dna that could mm. give a hint to like every you know environmental mm. um chemical impact on how the DNA is being used in the future. So, um, but yeah, um, thank you so much for um, for presenting your work here today. And uh, this, as I said, is really important work. And I really, um, we feel really lucky that you came here today to, you know, take time from your very busy schedule to do this. and. We wish you all the best for the future and if um, we will for sure at least I will for sure follow your work in the future and yeah if there's anything we can do um, I don't know if we can probably not but if there is um, yeah make sure to share it with us and yeah I wish you all the best and all the funding uh, to continue your Thanks. work and Thank nice so people much. to collaborate with. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, really, I enjoyed uh, the conversation and thank you for the invitation. Um, I wanted to just say that at the end of the presentation, there is actually a link to uh, a documentary that we did on, uh, that I did on, on Maputo and uh, during the drought, looking at different neighborhoods and uh, they, how they access water and their challenges and their aspirations. And so if anyone is interested, 
Um, there is a link to the trailer and there is a link to the documentary uh, on the last slide of the presentation. Yeah, I was just going there and uh, I'm posting the link in the chat who doesn't maybe have access um, the trailer at least and um, yeah um, thank you so much for doing this work and I hope we hear you again one day and yeah as I said good luck with everything it was really an honor having you here and um, yeah and thank you everyone for coming you know asking questions posting comments and um, yeah I hope you everyone has a great weekend wherever you are and uh, yeah hope i hear you all again thank you thank you bye bye hi thank Close you doctor all. it was an honor thank you thanks yeah exactly so i'll close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you bye bye